not, uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to wrap up Hebrews 11 today with some exciting stuff. Uh, In these eight verses that we're going to look at here this morning, uh, the apostle to the Hebrews is going to summarize all of your Old Testament from the book of Judges all the way to the book of Malachi. Uh, So that's pretty good. You're You're going to get a condensation of about 32 books in about eight verses. Um, And uh, we want to look at that together. So let me just read here the initial several verses, beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth." Now, if you look at the first three and a half verses of that, of that first paragraph uh, here, what you see is that faith is, is something that produces amazing victories and miracles. And if you look closely at them, you'll see it. Uh, if you look at verse 32, uh, the apostle here has spent 31 verses to this point talking about a relative handful of people. And now, for the sake of time, he's just going to start summarizing a whole lot. And as I said, everything from Judges all the way to Malachi, he's going to compress into about eight verses here. And he's like a preacher who realizes he's got like 17 more points he wants to make, and he's got like seven more minutes in which to do it. And so he's just compressing and cutting as much as he can. And he says, look here, look at this list, Gideon, Samson. Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Uh, Amazing men of faith, every one of these people that he's listed. Not perfect men. In fact, not perfect by any means. Every one of these men have have great failures and great sins that in many cases outnumber the great victories and great examples of faith. Faith. But God, in His grace, chooses to highlight not all these guys' failures, of which they were many, but, uh, but the times that he, they trusted God and saw His power on display. And look at what they saw happen. It says, kingdoms were conquered. You had uh, Barak, who defeated Jabin, the Canaanite king who reigned in Hatzor. Uh, you had Gideon who defeated this huge invasion. You remember the story? You got the, it says that the, the Midianite army was spread out like the sand on the seashore in this valley. And Gideon, this is, my, this is one of the greatest 
military victories in Israel's history. Gideon gets, gets down. He gets his, his army, starts at 30,000 guys. Then it goes down to 10,000 guys. And then the Lord tells him, you still got too many. <laughs> and so he gets down to 300 guys. And God tells him, okay, now take some torches and some clay pots. And line, line the hills around the, the, the valley where all the Midianites are encamped. And at the right moment... Smash the jars and light the torches and uh, and shout, and everybody will and you'll win the victory. Okay, now I'm not a military tactician, but I'm pretty sure that this is not generally speaking a tremendous battle plan, right? Uh, you know, I, I tend to be like the Civil War general who says that his objective is get there the firstest with the mostest right? I want to have a lot more swords, a lot more shields, a lot more guys, and I'm certainly not relying on clay pots and torches to do the job for me. But in fact, that is exactly what the Lord used. And all the Midianite army was defeated as they attacked one another in the dark. The Lord threw the whole army into confusion, and they were never invaded by Midian again. When the Ammonites oppressed the people of Gilead on the east side of the Jordan for 18 years, God raised up Jephthah, who subdued them, while Samson was busy with the Philistines over on the west side of Israel, continuing the war against them. And through them, through these guys, Israel regained the territory that she had lost to these invaders. And God used David to subdue the Philistines and the last of the Canaanites that were left in the land undefeated from the days of Joshua. And by these men, God enforced justice, as the text says. That was the role of the judges and the kings and the prophets, to ensure that the law of God was followed and that wickedness was put down. And by faith, these people also obtained promises. Now, if you read your Old Testament, you know that there are, there are a couple of major promises that are made to God's Old Covenant people. You have, first of all, the Abrahamic Covenant, but Abraham's already been discussed. And so, this, so on this list, there are people who got covenants. There's King David out of 2 Samuel... Uh, yeah, 2 2 Samuel, yes, chapter 7, the, Abraham, I mean, the Davidic covenant, where God tells David, look, you're going to have always a descendant of yours to sit on your throne reigning from Jerusalem. Now, that's partially fulfilled in David's dynasty that comes after him through Solomon and then Rehoboam and uh, Jehoshaphat and Asa and Hezekiah and Josiah and all these guys that descend from David. But of course, the ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus, who really will reign forever on David's throne in Jerusalem. And we will, in fact, see that happen. If you are a child of God, you will live and to see God's kingdom established through Jesus Christ on the earth reigning from Jerusalem, just as God said to David. He obtained a promise. But the other major promise, which is made not only to Israel, but also extended to us, is the new covenant. 
And you read about it in Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel 37, where God says, I'm going to send forth the Spirit of God. And you're going to get a new covenant that's not written on tablets of stone like the old one that Moses brought down from Sinai, but is a new covenant where I will be with you as your God and I will dwell within you and you will know me in a personal way, not as a God speaking from a mountain at a distance, but a God who dwells within you and knows you intimately and personally. And that you know they received promises. By faith, these men stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Remember, Daniel went to the lion's den and he didn't get a scratch. The guys who put him in there went to the lion's den and they got consumed before they hit the floor. So it wasn't that the lions were just full and, you know, didn't really need a snack and Daniel looked kind of stringy. These were lions that were ready to eat. And yet Daniel went into the lion's den trusting the Lord and walked out without a scratch. His three friends, you remember them? Uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Remember them? Well, maybe you remember them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their Babylonian names, the names they were given because they, were, they went into the king's service and he gave them Babylonian names, named them after some of his favorite Babylonian gods, and they said, that's fine, we'll take that name, but we are not Babylonians and we will not bow down to you or to the idol you have set up. And he says, if you don't, I've got a furnace prepared to put you in it. And they said, I love this. This is, my, this is, this is one of my favorite stories. He said, they said, oh God, our, our, our king, oh God, our, our, our God, oh king, is able to save us from this furnace. And then they said this, but even if he does not, we are not going to bow down to you or to that idol that you have set up. We will, you can give us a Babylonian name. You can take us to Babylon. You can force us to learn all the things that the Babylonians know and all, of, all about the system of worship that you have. But I am not going to be a Babylonian. And so he fired the furnace up so hot that it killed the guys stoking the furnace. And he threw them in. And they walked around, and their, the, the, the bindings that they had around them were all burned off, but their clothes were not scorched, and when they came out, they did not smell like smoke. Now, I've had a fire in the yard that I've not been in, and I smell like smoke, right? But these guys did not smell like smoke. Why? Why? Because by faith they trusted the Lord that whether you deliver me or whether you don't deliver me, I'm not going to do that which God condemns. They quenched the power of fire. The text says they escaped the edge of the sword. I think it's probably a reference to the time 
in the ministry of Elisha when the Syrian army came to capture him. Do you remember this? God surrounds his house with an army of his own. The Syrian king thinks, oh, I got this wired. I'm going to go down and get Elisha because he is spying on me. He knows what is said in my council chamber. And so I'm going to go get him. And he comes with his whole army. They surround Elisha's house. And Elisha's servant is there, and he says, uh, My master, what are we going to do? The whole army is out there. He goes, uh, Don't worry. Greater are, are the forces that are with us than those that are with them. And he goes, What are you talking about? It's you and me in the house. We're going to die. And Elisha prays and says, Lord, open his eyes. And as he looks, he sees the hills surrounding them with angels and flaming chariots of fire. And the Syrian army very soon departs, and Elisha is kept safe. They escape the edge of the sword. Being made strong out of weakness could refer perhaps to Elijah when he was weak after his confrontation with Jezebel's prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel. You ought to read 1 Kings 18 if you haven't of this great story. And afterwards, Elijah's weak, but the Lord strengthens him. Or it could be a reference to Samson. Remember after, after Debbie... Uh, or uh, no, not Debbie, Jezebel. I'm sorry, Jezebel. Not not even her. No, what was her name? Delilah. Dad, gone. Hey there, Delilah. Right? It's your ex-boyfriend, Samson. Right? Uh, goodness, I can't remember her name. Okay, probably good that I don't remember. But uh, Delilah puts out his eyes and shaves his head, and then they put Samson to work grinding grain. Like, a, like an animal grinding grain for the Philistines. And the text says, but his hair began to grow. And then they bring him out for a big holiday. They've got all of the, all of the leading Philistines and all these pagans in the temple of Dagon. And they bring Samson out and they start to mock him because they believe, well, see, if you were really all that in a bag of chips, then our God wouldn't have defeated you. And here we are, and you're in our temple of our God, and we know that Dagon is really, is really the power in Israel. And you and your puny Yahweh that you worship, ah, you're blind and grinding grain. And Samson puts his hands on the pillars holding up the temple, and he prays to the Lord, and he asks that one more time he might have divine empowerment, and he gets it, and he pushes down the temple on top of himself, but also on top of all these thousands of leading Philistines, and he kills more in his death than he did in his life. He's made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. That happens so frequently among the judges and kings and prophets, it's really hard to narrow it down. God delivered people from invaders and oppressors, supernaturally raising up and empowering a whole series 
of deliverers. It says that they put foreign armies to flight. And it's again, it's hard to determine exactly which time this was, but one of the best ones is also during the days of Elisha. Uh, when Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, besieged Samaria until its people are literally starving to death. But in one night, in one night, God comes into the Syrian camp and He causes the Syrians to hear the sound of a massive approaching army. Now, there is no massive approaching army. But they think there is one, and they hear it, and they bug out. I mean, they leave all of their flocks and herds and animals and extra clothes and any treasures that they brought with them. They leave it all behind, and they beat feet all the way back to Syria. They're like throwing stuff off, (laughs) anything that will slow them down, all the way back to Damascus. And the people, of course, come out, and they are rescued. They are rescued by the power of God. And they have enough food. They have a restoration of all their flocks and herds because the Syrians left it all behind. They put foreign armies to flight. The next line here in the first half of verse 35 is the last celebratory note that's here. Women receive back their dead. And again, I think that's a reference to the ministry, again, of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah raises the, uh, the widow of Zarephath's son. He's staying with her up in the region around Tyre and Sidon. And her son dies. And Elijah raises him to life again. And then later in the ministry of, El- of Elisha, you've got uh, another young man that dies. Now, the Shunammite widow's son dies, and Elisha raises him to life again. And then after Elisha himself is dead, there comes along a time where um, someone is attacking Israel, and there's some guys having a funeral, and they haven't got the grave dug yet, so they throw throw him into Elisha's tomb, and the guy gets up out of the tomb alive. Now, wouldn't that be something? Right? Can you imagine going to a funeral where the guy sits up and starts talking to you? I mean, that would be wild, right? And so, and that's what, that's what happened. Raised to life again. And so in just these three and a half verses, you see example after example of faith producing victories and miracles. And God did not honor these people because they were good or because they were holy or because they were perfect, but it was in spite of their failures. It was in spite of, of Jephthah's misguided and immoral vow. It was in spite of the fact that Barak and Gideon and Elijah were fearful. It was in spite of the fact of David's lust and murder and Samson's lust and stupidity and Samuel's wounded pride and bad parenting. God used these men to accomplish great victories, not because they were great, but because he is. And they trusted him when the chips were down, and so God delivered in amazing ways. And the point of all of these verses, these three and a half verses, is, is that is, is for us not to go wobbly when everything goes dark. 
our temptation is to be just like Elisha's servant who sees the army but never sees God's army until, he, until Elisha prays that his eyes would be opened. Who never, who never realizes that the angels and chariots of fire surround him. And so the encouragement that is, is there in these verses is for us to realize that God can, if he wants to, as dark as, it, as dark as things might get, and they can get very, very dark indeed, that God can, if he wants to, according to his plan, work deliverance for his people against all odds. Amen? He can do what cannot be done by you and I. Did anybody ever hear of a captive lion that didn't eat somebody that was in there at snack time? Me either. And yet Daniel escapes from the lions. Elisha and his servant escape, escape from an invading army. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk around in the furnace like they're having a day at the beach because the Lord is there with them. All these things happen because the Lord is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or imagine if we will trust Him. And so the encouragement to these Hebrews and the encouragement to us is to not give in to fear when things look very dark, but to trust Him and to perhaps see His deliverance. Now, these next few verses are a little darker. And they tell us that faith endures through hard persecution. And if you read down verse 35 through verse 38, it's not so much an exhortation to, to be faithful, but as an encouragement to be faithful. That even though God did perform amazing miracles, and give great victories. He did not do so in every situation. Amen? And he does not do so in every situation. And so verse 35b through 38, a reminder that, it, that faith not only produces great victories, it also endures through hard persecution. And if you watch a lot of religious television, which is something I do not recommend, in fact, I actively discourage you from doing, but if you watch that, what you will do, what you will find out from some of these people is that, is that God only wants you to experience blessing and happiness and health and a fat bank account, right? Is that true? No! That's a lie. That's false teaching. That's why I don't encourage you to watch that stuff. And these verses make that very, very clear. That regardless of what Paula White or uh, Creflo, give me a dollar, or, you know, uh, whatever, whoever else, whatever other idiot they've got on there, okay, says, very often the life of faith, the life of faith includes enduring hardship and persecution. And it isn't going from victory to victory necessarily. It can be. But not always. 
Even David, as many victories as he experienced, also got put out of his own castle by his own kid. And some of the prophets were tortured, and some were imprisoned, and some were chained and flogged, like Jeremiah, who was beaten and put in the stocks and spent several days without food or water, sinking into the mud at the bottom of a waterless cistern. According to tradition, Jeremiah died by being stoned to death, like several of the other prophets. King Ahab imprisoned righteous prophet Micaiah because he would not prophesy good, prophesy good things about a wicked king. Remember that story? I believe it's King Jehoshaphat of Judah is up there with him. And they're having a conversation, and, and, and Ahab has all these prophets of Baal who are talking about the great victories they're going to win together. And Jehoshaphat is slow, but he's not completely slow. And he says, well, isn't there a prophet of the Lord we can ask? And he goes, well, there is Micaiah, but I put him in jail because he never says anything good about me, only bad, you know. And so he's like, well, get him out of jail and let's hear what the Lord has to say. And then he went back to prison. King, uh, the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half under the reign of Hezekiah's wicked son Manasseh. Other prophets like Uriah, a prophet in the days of wicked king Jehoiakim, were slain with the sword. And prophets virtually all lived hard lives. They didn't have nice clothes. They wore sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute. They lived in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth because they were frequently on the run from wicked men who wanted them dead. Elijah fled to a cave on Mount Sinai to escape from Jezebel. And Obadiah hid a hundred of God's prophets in two caves that they might live to speak God's word on another day. And these heroes, like others like them, both named and unnamed all through your Old Testament, could no doubt have escaped persecution and death if they had just recanted their testimonies and their prophetic words. But they decided that imprisonment and flogging and chains and torture and destitution and life on the, on the run and even a very painful death was worth it because they looked forward to a better kind of resurrection. Not a resurrection to life in this world like Isaiah raised the widow of Zarephath's son, too. He he raised that kid back to life, and his mom was really happy about it, as well she should have been. But but, But these guys saw from a different perspective, and they realized, you know what? If I die in this life, it's no great problem, because I am going not to a resurrection back to life in this world, but to life in the presence of God. And I'll get a better resurrection to a better life. And so it's okay. And the point is to encourage these Hebrews, and by extension to encourage you and me, that God's plan may include suffering for His sake. Amen? God's plan for your life may include suffering. And by the way, Jesus was pretty explicit about this. Remember what He said? 
If anyone would come after me, let him first deny himself. Okay, that, that's suffering right there, right? Deny yourself. I mean, I like to think of myself first in like every circumstance, right? My primary question in life is what do I want? Deny himself, but then it gets worse. Take up his cross and follow me. Now, Jesus was not being figurative about that. The cross was an implement of execution for people who were enemies of the state. And he says, look, come follow me and die. Oh, well, that's, that's seeker sensitive, isn't it? <laughs> right? I mean, really, okay. Uh, <clears throat> could you be a little more encouraging, Jesus? Uh, but no, Jesus says, look, come follow me and face the risk of being executed and possibly live to experience the risk coming and being fulfilled in your life. But at the same time, get a better life than the one you are now leading. Suffering might include persecution. Now read the next two verses for me, the last two verses here. Hebrews 11. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now this is the second time in this chapter the apostle points out that none of these people received everything that was promised to them. That is, they didn't get all of the complete fulfillment of all of the promises that God had made. Jeremiah never lived to see the new covenant established, neither did Ezekiel. They never lived long enough to see the coming of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the church and the coming of Messiah. And all these things were promised to them, and they didn't get them. Did David live to see his kingdom established? No, he didn't. Did David live to see his descendant reign forever on his throne? No, he didn't. And even though all of, these, all of these people were trying to call the nation of Israel back to faith in, in, in God and to walking according to His ways, you know, all know what happened to the nation. They all went into exile. First, the northern kingdom to Assyria, and then the southern kingdom to Babylon, where they remained for 70 years and then came back to be a vassal state and it's part of the Persian Empire. And the kingdom was never restored in the way that God had told them that it would be. But the kingdom is coming. As these verses make clear, that God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. These men were all looking forward to the day when Christ would come and the fulfillment of all, his promise, all their promises uh, would come in with Him. And Christ is... God's fulfillment of God's promise to Israel being a blessing to all nations. And Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises to David of the king and to Israel of, of the Mosaic and the new covenant. Christ is the greater prophet and judge and king of which these men were only shadows and imitations and copies. And therefore, we possess the reality that they anticipated. And therefore, our faith should not be less than theirs. Amen? 
They were looking forward to stuff that hadn't happened yet. We are looking back on the fulfillment of a massive number of God's promises to us in Christ. And since they were only anticipating things that they had not seen, their faith was amazing. But our faith should not be of lesser kind and quality than theirs because we have already seen many of these things happen that they were only anticipating. And so, by faith, you look to God for victory. You look to God for deliverance. And you endure through persecution until the king and the kingdom come. Amen? We can see the whole picture of the fulfillment of all things in Christ and of his eventual return for us in power and in eternal glory. And we don't know what God's promise uh, is, is when it lo- you know, what it will all look like when it's all fulfilled, all of it. We don't know what his plans for us will be. You know, perhaps it will be for victory and for miracles and seeing God's deliverance against impossible odds. I personally like that one. If I get to sign up for one or the other, I, I, want, I want to be in that line. Okay? I like that idea a whole lot better of seeing chariots of fire surround my house. I, I like that. But even if not, if God's purpose and promise and plan for me is to endure persecution and flogging and imprisonment and torture and death, we're going to be faithful. If I have to live a life on the run and live in a cave and eat, eat bugs and wear goat skins, okay, then I'm going to get my Tarzan on. And we're going to live that way rather than dishonor the Lord. Amen? We're going to rely on Him and we're going to consider all costs to be worth it because there is a better resurrection coming. There is a better judge, a better king, a better prophet coming. And so until the king and his kingdom come, keep trusting and keep relying and keep on obeying and proclaiming his word that by faith you might receive all that God has promised to you as well. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we are blessed that we are not yet in this country experiencing the kinds of things that people of faith are experiencing in the Middle East and in China and Indonesia, in Africa, in lots of hard places all around the world, Father, where your people are on the run and persecuted and tortured and killed. We are not yet there. Father, I pray that, that this passage would be an encouragement to us and an exhortation to us that no matter what your plans for us are, whether they are to glorify yourself through us in great victories and miracles or whether they are to glorify yourself in us through persecution that is hard, Father, whatever your plans for us are, we accept them 
and we trust you with our future. And we submit ourselves to you because our desire is to glorify you regardless. And Father, we pray that we would have a faith that endures, that we might receive our commendation from you on the day that Christ comes. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.